Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to One Step Beyond, a new podcast series that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. Whether it's to walk a local trail or climb a distant mountain, travel to a new country or explore culture close to home, run a first 5K or tackle an ultramarathon, One Step Beyond is all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. Yes, I know, we're mostly currently under orders to stay at home, but that's all the more reason to prepare for the day when we can get back outside. I'm Tony Fletcher, an author, broadcaster, runner, hiker and traveller. As much as anything, I'm a storyteller. And to that end, One Step Beyond will include interviews, features and field recordings. We start with a four-part mini-series from Kingston to Kilimanjaro, based on my journey to Tanzania last August. Now, if the thought of climbing to the roof of Africa seems beyond you, know firstly that it is not. You'd be amazed at some of the people who make it to the summit. But if it's financially beyond your reach, that's understandable. And from episode 5 onwards, we will be tackling adventures you can have on your doorstep. So, whether you're listening on the sofa, in the kitchen, or getting your daily exercise while practicing your social distancing, relax, enjoy, and get ready to go. One step Last few steps. Last few steps. Last few steps. Here we are. Proud of us. We did it. My name is Tony Fletcher, and in August 2019, I set off with four friends and a guide to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. At 19,341 feet, that's 5,895 meters above sea level, Kilimanjaro is the highest point of Africa, and it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. Perhaps because of this, because it's actually a volcano, it's also the highest mountain in the world that you can climb without need for professional gear. In other words, you're meant to be able to walk all the way to the top. Almost 50,000 people a year attempt the summit. Not all of them make it. The intense demands on the body in ever-thinning air cause many people to give up before they can reach the peak. Did we make it? Well, what you heard of me at the start of this recording was not us reaching the actual summit, 
and the celebratory song and dance you're also hearing is performed for all climbers by the mountain crew regardless. What I will say is that it was hard work, maybe the hardest thing I've ever attempted. I'll also say that it was the most rewarding. But let's be honest, the cost can be intimidating. And without a group of people that you know to go with, and especially if you've never been to Africa before or hiked mountains of any real height before, it's exactly the kind of ambition people tend to put off year after year after year. Fortunately, here in New York's Hudson Valley, we have someone who grew up in the shadow of Mount Kilimanjaro, climbed it many times as a guide and porter in his youth, and who frequently takes small tour groups over to Tanzania, as the locals often refer to their country. His name is Protus Mayunga, and by working directly with him and recruiting a group of like-minded individuals, I was able to cut out the middleman and make the trip affordable. I'm a writer and broadcaster by trade, so I brought my recording devices along with me for the journey up the mountain. Over the course of this series, it's my hope that you'll be able to experience a little bit of what it's like to go on an adventure like this, and that by the time we're all done, you'll be ready to embark on one of your own. From Kingston to Kilimanjaro, a four-part series on a journey to the roof of Africa. Episode 1, The Planning. Nice to meet you. You just heard the five of us who went on this trip on the first day of the climb, introducing ourselves to Simon, one of our summit guides and Protus's uncle. Simon was on his 451st summit of the mountain, and no, you didn't mishear me. The five of us, of course, were on our very first ascent, and on the climb up and down, I asked my friends to introduce themselves and talk a little about why they chose to come on the journey. Okay, uh, so my name is Gwendolyn Alley. I currently live in Ventura, California, in Southern California, and at sea level. And uh, I'm now a long way away from sea level, but uh, I've always loved the mountains. Um, I grew up backpacking, started backpacking when I was 13, climbed my first 14er when I was 13, climbed another 14er when I was 14, climbed another one when I was 15, and by the time I was 18, I was a counselor at this camp, and every week I was leading kids up 14ers. 13ers and 14ers, by the way stand for 13 and 14,000 foot mountains, of which there are several in the western United States where Gwen grew up. And with a resume like hers, she sounds an absolute certainty to climb Mount Kilimanjaro without trouble. But all of us on this hike were now well into our 50s or beyond. And Gwen had doubts about her overall fitness as she ages. In the end, it was those very doubts that propelled her to join us. About a year and a half ago, I was thinking about the things that I wanted to do while I had the will and the ability, because uh, I know that I'm going to have the will to do things longer than I'm going to have the ability. And uh, so I made a list, and I don't think of it as a bucket list, but a to-do list. And I strategized, and I had Kilimanjaro down for 2020. 
And then uh, not long after I made that list, uh, Tony told me that about this trip, and I'm like, wow, okay, maybe I should do Kilimanjaro in 2019. And here I am. Gwen's journey from Los Angeles to Kilimanjaro, which is situated in the southeast of Africa, was 10,000 miles by air. My friend Tim took an equally long journey from a different corner of the globe. I'm a South London boy. Grew up a few streets from Tony. And uh, we shared a love of Crystal Palace and music. And we became friends. I've always wanted to go to Africa. I've got a big, deep passion for African music. Um, and I'm a trekker. And Tony said he was organising this trip. And I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a whirl. Oh, sorry, mate. And although you uh, grew up in South London, where do you live now? Sydney, uh, Blue Mountains, near Sydney, Australia. Right, so you live in the mountains? Yeah. So and we moved there. We moved to Australia 20 years ago. Right. My wife's Australian. Right. How do your mountains compare to uh, Kilimanjaro? Well, they're tiny. <laughs> There's no such thing as altitude in the Blue Mountains. That lack of altitude experience was a concern for Tim. And for good reason, as you'll discover. The remaining three of us all knew each other from the running community here in the Hudson Valley. And we figured our experience on long trail runs and the occasional road marathon would put us in good stead for the cardiovascular workout we could expect on Kilimanjaro. However, Marie had never been any higher than our local Catskill Mountains, which top out at 4,000 feet. We'd be starting our ascent to Kilimanjaro from a greater height than that. In addition, Marie had had some recent health issues, which initially caused her to think twice about the trip. Ultimately, though, and much like Gwen, she turned her personal reservations into a booking reservation. Once it was proposed, of course it sounded like a fabulous idea, but the first thing I thought was like, well, yes, it's a fabulous idea, but not really a good time to do it because of a variety of things, but then I thought, you know, um, well, for me, I had a bad bike accident in 2016, and then last year, just about a year ago, I had a hip replacement surgery, so I'm like, well, this is the time to do it, you, know, you, can't, you can't just keep putting off big things. And that's why, you know, I jumped on board. For his part, as well as being an experienced runner, Steve's been to Machu Picchu in Peru, a multi-day trek that took him over 14,000 feet. However, Steve was the oldest of our group, well into his 60s if he doesn't mind me saying, and that put him on the cusp of the recommended age for a climb. So, all four of my friends had reasons not to go, among them age, ability a lack of altitude experience, and recent medical issues. And that's not even counting the travel distance, the time away from family, and the cost of the trip. The fact that they all went for it regardless says plenty about their zest for life. And that kind of energy and enthusiasm is really valuable when you're halfway up the mountain, and you're tired and you're hungry and you're suffering from the thinner air. As for myself, it would be fair to say I had both elevation and running experience. I'd also been to Tanzania before. In 2016, I'd taken a year out to go on a round-the-world backpacking journey with my then-wife and our then-11-year-old son, a trip that included 10 days in mainland Tanzania. We only got to glimpse the famous flat top of Mount Kilimanjaro, but that was enough to convince me that one day I'd want to come back and climb it. And elsewhere on our travels, we did two long treks into the Himalaya, and I additionally climbed Mount Kinabalu in Borneo. Still, 
None of those climbs took me more than three quarters of the way up Kilimanjaro's elevation. And even at those heights, I'd felt the effects of altitude sickness. Upset stomach, a shortness of breath, and a greater stress on the body, especially when you're going uphill with a backpack. Besides, AMS, as acute mountain sickness is most commonly referred to, doesn't really care whether you've been up a mountain before. It can strike anyone, any place, any time. And while the cure is generally a simple one, just turn around and descend to a lower altitude, in its most severe form, when it translates into something known as a high-altitude edema, it can be fatal. People do die on Mount Kilimanjaro every year. But without doubt, the most important person to fly into Kilimanjaro for our climb was Protus. <laughs> you know, we went to school together. Oh, really? Yeah, we went to high school, high school together. together. Yeah. Excellent. That's nice. It shouldn't have come as a total surprise that Protus met an old high school friend on Mount Kilimanjaro. Although he was born in northwestern Tanzania, out by Lake Victoria, he moved in his early teens to the city of Arusha the main hub for safaris and climbs in northern Tanzania. A couple of years later, he moved further east again, to a boarding school in the shadows of Mount Kilimanjaro itself. Produs was soon asking his uncle Simon to take him along. That is how I was 14. <coughs> as 14. a porter? Yeah, as a porter. And your first time you got to the top, you were 14? No, I was uh, around uh, 15, 15 and a half-ish. Right. Yeah. It wasn't long before Protus was regularly summiting the mountain as a guide, and it was in that capacity that an American family took an interest in him and sponsored him to come to the United States for education. He attended college in Pennsylvania, and as things go, met someone, started a family, and moved to the Catskill Mountains. Along the way, he started his company, the Roof of Africa Adventures, and takes people back over to Tanzania for climbs and safaris whenever possible. Within the scheme of things, Produs's company is tiny, but what he's able to offer is a more individualized, interactive, cultural experience. Most tour companies, whether you hire them in the US, Tanzania, or anywhere in between, take their cut of the fee, set you up with a crew, and you have to hope for the best. And there's an inherent disconnect with many of these crews. I saw a lot of what I call this imperial tourism when I visited Tanzania in 2016. And it's especially prevalent amongst those who fly in for safaris. Too many tourists are discouraged, even forbidden, from leaving their hotels unaccompanied. This just perpetuates a fear of the other that has no genuine basis in reality. Certainly not in a country like Tanzania, where the people are exceptionally friendly. You wouldn't be listening to this beautiful choir in the background, for example, if I hadn't left our hotel early on the first day of our climb, for a run, believe it or not, and come across a group of women singing in the backyard. When they saw me watching them, they invited me in to listen more closely and to film them without any requests in return. Produs certainly encourages his clients to get out and meet people. On the day before our climb, he joined us on a cultural walk with a local guide in the village of Marangu. 
Prodas filled an unusual role, somewhere between client and guide, and serving as a translator for those in our crew who only spoke Swahili. He made sure we met the cook every evening and that we socialised with the porters. At the end of the trip, we all even shared a minibus back to Arusha together. All of this is important because one thing I have to say at the outset is that if you're only interested in going somewhere like Kilimanjaro, is to take a picture at the summit so that you can post it on social media and brag about it. Please don't bother. Tanzania is a beautiful country, and there's really no point going there and spending six days on the continent's highest mountain, hopefully adding at least a couple of days in either side of the climb, if you're not willing to learn about the people in the country in the meantime. It's dinner time at the Babylon Lodge in Marangu. And true to his point about sharing aspects of his home country, Protus is making sure that we get to sample ugali, the staple starch of the Tanzanian diet. I know ugali. You can put that in front of you. Corn. Cornmeal. Wonderful. And, uh, and it looks... It's more like a dough. It's more like a dough, exactly. Yeah. So I guess this is, this is what I, I wanted to. Oh, how nice of you! Yeah. So we can so. try another traditional thing. We didn't exactly. see the, the banana We've spent our day on the culture tour, walking many miles in the process. And now, on the eve of our climb, we're about to head back to our rooms to lay out our supplies for an inspection by Protus, who wants to ensure we're carrying everything we need, and only what we need, for the next six days and five nights. The list is exhausting and far more extensive than required on my previous climbs, which admittedly were to much lower heights. In my case, it includes, for starters, an outer shell down-type jacket and an inner zip-up fleece-type top. I don't wear animal products, so I had to go the extra mile and find synthetic alternatives. There's several layers for the upper body, preferably wool or synthetic, but definitely not cotton. Hiking shorts. Hiking pants, rain pants, wind pants, tights, long thermal underwear, gloves, light and thick, sunglasses, capable of high UV resistance, a wide-brimmed hat for the sun and a balaclava and or beanie for the cold, various net warmers, buffs and ski masks for the cold, thin socks, thick socks, sneakers for the evenings round camp and hiking boots of course for the daytime trekking plus gaiters that go on top of those boots to keep the mountain scree out of them. We needed a poncho for rainstorms and something to protect the backpacks from rain as well. A sleeping bag capable of guarding against temperatures that might drop as low as 15 degrees Fahrenheit at night. Water bottles, ideally made of Nalgene to protect against freezing, and note the plural. We've been advised to set off with at least two litres every morning. A headlamp and extra batteries are absolutely essential. And so are trekking poles, we're told. Now, if Kilimanjaro was your first long hike, I admit this would be a forbiddingly expensive shopping list. Fortunately, the five of us had built an outdoor wardrobe over the years, and I was able to justify purchasing those items I didn't already have, in confidence that they'll see further use in the future. Additionally, I did as a lot of people do who are looking to keep their luggage down, and rented the sleeping bag from our crew in Tanzania for about $20. All this, though, was merely the clothing. 
quite apart from getting your shots in advance, there was also the list of medical supplies and toiletries. We have sunspray, sunblock. I've got some Arnicare cooling gel that I may possibly leave behind. Ibuprofen, Advil. Um, I expect to get blinding headaches uh, even if I don't get full on altitude sickness. Ginkgo bibola. Ginkgo bibola, as I'm sure you're wondering, is a herbal alternative to Diamox, which is the prescription medicine that some people were able to get on their insurance as a means to hopefully fend off altitude sickness. I have Caladryl, um, which I kind of am tempted to leave behind because I haven't seen any mosquitoes yet at this altitude. Aloe vera, uh, again, it's in like the Caladryl, it's a new container, so it's a little heavier than I wish it was, six ounces, but gonna see a lot of sun, I'm blonde. Moleskin for potential um, blisters, wet ones. Little um, bag here that's got some band-aids and um, a little bit of medical tape, some Q-tips and neosporin. I was merrily dictating this list to my tape recorder when Tim walked in to join me, and we reflected on how ridiculous it seemed to be carrying so much stuff. It's um, kind of, it is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. The charcoal caps are, you know, anti-gas detox. I mean, that's recommended. We're supposed to be farting lots up up the hill. Farting is good for you, Farting yes. Farting is good. The Imodium tablets are for uh, similarly related things, um, for diarrhoea, which is possible, um, particularly at high altitude. Tim let me know he had some news to share. he just met a guide in the restaurant who'd returned from Kilimanjaro with his group. They didn't make it. They didn't make they it? They didn't make it. None of them? No. This is the brutal reality of Kilimanjaro. You can take a trip all the way around the world with all of these supplies and still not make it up the mountain. You realise that if you can't make it, I carry on without you. Uh, you know the same, don't right, you? Yes, yeah, 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 that's yeah. what friends are for. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly, but I won't take the socks off your dead feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's... So, you know, the thing that um, the guy in town was saying earlier, the Coca-Cola route, they call this mm. the easy route. No, but that's but just, it's in the book. Yeah. It's in the book that it's also it's the shortest route, but because it's considered the easy route, more people don't make it because whether it's easy or hard, you're going up to the same heights. You are, and but it's also got the steepest final ascent. Yes. Oh, no, yeah. no, they all go up from the Kibo huts the no. same. No, they don't. Get the book. The book. Get Henry. Tim's book. The book we're referring to, Tim's book, is actually by Henry Stedman. It's called Kilimanjaro, The Trekking Guide to Africa's Highest Mountain, published by Trailblazer, and I recommend it above any other book on the subject. The reason we need to consult Stedman is because there are six different routes up Kilimanjaro, and I've just mistakenly suggested that they all converge at the Kibo huts and take the same slog up the side of the volcano from there. Tim is right. Although the six different routes converge on what's called the Kibo Circuit, a path that runs around the foot of the actual crater, there are three different ways to ascend, according to which route you've been taking to this point. Our route, the Marango route, is the only one that involves staying in huts the whole way up. This ironically brings the cost down, as the porters don't have to carry camping equipment. It's also a route that can be completed in five days, though we've added an extra day for acclimatisation at 12,500 feet. Morning all. How's everyone? We're very well, Tony. <laughs> Finally, it's Saturday, August the 3rd. Everyone's excited about packing up the bags, getting in the minivan, and finally starting the uphill trek. 
However, in Tanzania, there's a lot of what you might call hurry up and wait. Most of our crew are coming in from Arusha, which is about three hours away, and they're not setting off until they can buy the freshest food available. Once the market's open at about eight o'clock in the morning. Once we do get to the Marangu Gate, we have a lot of time to sit around and have our packed lunch at the picnic shelter. These days, the business of taking people up Kilimanjaro is rightly regulated. Porters are not allowed to carry more than 20 kilograms each. They supposedly pay the minimum wage, which is all of $6 a day, by the way, and there's a guaranteed number of guides per climber. And everyone on the crew is assured of proper shelter. It's all a far cry from when protests started out three decades ago. When I was a porter, um, we, we, we slept in the, in, in the caves. You know, a lot of companies didn't have, you know, equipment to... And of course, Kilimanjaro National Park, you know, they, they weren't really strict about, you know. So that was, that's, you know, the client stays in the tent and we, we slept in a cave. Oh, wow. That's, you know, that's what it, you know, that's how it was. And I, one time, actually... Uh, I, I don't know, something, it was something that I was left behind and I have to go back and pick it up. I couldn't get to the place where I was supposed to be like early enough, so I ended up just like, you know, sleeping off a rock or something and get up in the morning and went and caught up with everybody. Given this history of porters being forced to sleep in caves or even just on rocks, and by the way, the Stedman book says that several porters die every year on the mountain, as well as several clients. It was a relief to be going with a family-based company. Not only was Protus employing his uncle, Simon, the guy who first took him up the mountain, as one of our guides, but also his nephew, Lucas, a character that we get to know really, really well over the coming days. And everybody else on the crew seemed genuinely happy to be out there and on the mountain. Got a last minute, like, what do I take out of the duffel bag and put in my day bag? The long wait at the Marangu Gate gives us a chance to reevaluate our bag distribution for the day. The deal is that climbers carry our own day packs, in which the water will probably be our heaviest item, and the porters carry everything else, delivering our larger bags with toiletries and our other clothes at camp when we arrive. The picnic shelter has a number of displays about Kilimanjaro, and Tim quickly hones in on that of the local Chaga people's legends about the volcano's formations. The two peaks, Moenzini and Kibo, are brothers. Kibo is the bigger but younger brother. One day, while smoking their pipes, Moenzini's fire went out. He asked his brother Kibo if he could borrow some fire. And then he went to sleep. Fire went out again. Kibo became angry. Beat him so badly that even today, no one can, one can see his battered and torn face. Oh my God. <laughs> the Chaga legend is endearing, but a geological explanation is probably more useful here. Mount Kilimanjaro is actually a volcano, or more precisely, three volcanoes, the youngest of which, Kibo, is the only one that still looks and acts like a volcano. That's the snow-capped flat peak that we all recognise from pictures as such, and the one that we are ascending, of course. Kibo emerged from the Great Rift Valley 460,000 years ago, making it a baby in terms of geological history. And it sits inside an absolutely vast caldera, or crater, that was itself formed when the oldest of the three volcanoes, Shira, collapsed in upon itself after a brief existence of around a quarter million years. There's still a Shira peak off to the west of Kilimanjaro, but it's dwarfed both by Kibo and by Mwenzi, which at 5,149 metres is Africa's third highest. However, Mwenzi 
which is instantly recognisable just east of Kibo, has eroded over the years to form what's now a highly distinctive and frighteningly forbidding jagged ridge of volcanic teeth that's summited only by accomplished mountaineers. Continued volcanic activity by Kibo itself over the last 460 millennia has produced the obsidian scree that forms its steep sides and has also created several parasitic craters, as they're called, that form a line across the ridge. One of these craters, well over a kilometre wide, sits inside the plateau on the mountain top itself and even contains its own ash cone, the result of volcanic activity just over 200 years ago. Throughout this crater, what are called fumaroles, that's volcanic vents, emit sulfuric steam. Officially, Mount Kilimanjaro is considered dormant, but that's a far cry from being inactive. We're just looking here at the records, the, the, uh, the running records. So it's gone from... Uh... For all of the geological and cultural history, I'm most taken by a display of the climbing records. In 2014, Carl Egloff ran our route from the Marangu Gate to the Uhuru Peak in just 4 hours 56 minutes. You could argue that because the distance is less than that of a road marathon, just under 23 miles on Marangu, that such a time is entirely feasible. But we'd be taking 5 days to cover the distance. Carl Egloff would appear to have had some assistance. So it's only fair to mention Tanzanian Simon Matui, who in 2006 ran up the Umbwe route and down Maweka in 9 hours 21 minutes, entirely unsupported. The mention of the other routes takes us to an encased three-dimensional display of the mountain, which provided the clearest evidence I saw in my entire stay of the summit's various approach roads. Marangu, our chosen route, is not just the only one with huts, but it's one of just two designated descent routes, the other one being Maweka. You can't actually go up Maweka, so our route is also the only one that's the same for both ascent and descent. Get set, get set. Are we starting? Get set, get sweat. Get, on your mark, get, get set, go. Finally, at around two in the afternoon, the crew arrives from Arusha, and not only does that mean the porters can pick up our bags, but we can be assigned our guides. Not counting Protus, we've got at least three of them throughout our climb up the mountain for the five of us. There's only one thing left to do before we can set off. Let's, let's get a, a picture here together. Okay. On our day one. Okay. Okay. Day one, day one, day one. Here, here. At the foot of the... I've never considered myself a tourist in any conventional sense, but I have to say, Kilimanjaro just begs to be photographed. All of it. Everybody say Kili. Kili. Pole pole. Pole pole. I don't know not ready. The phrase pole pole translates as slowly, slowly. You hear it all the time going up the mountain. A reminder that the only real way to deal with the altitude gain is to take it step by step. Superhuman athletes aside, Kili cannot be rushed. This all-important point is proven by a small group of young French women who we just met at the picnic table after their descent. They complain of dizziness, nausea, actual vomiting up at the summit, and at least one of them didn't make it to Uhuru Peak. As far as we can tell, they didn't fully grasp the gravity of their undertaking. Who knows whether we will make it either, but at least we prepared. Indeed, it's over two years now since I first began recruiting people to go on this adventure. 
almost a year since three of us booked our plane tickets. And it feels like it's been a lifetime of research, of shopping, of training, packing and travelling. Our afternoon hike ahead seems friendly enough, but we genuinely don't know what lies in store beyond that. Still, we are here. And in five days, we hope to be there, on the roof of Africa. The mini-series From Kingston to Kilimanjaro was produced at the studios of Radio Kingston in New York. If you have any comments about or suggestions for this show, email onestepbeyond at ijamming.net or find us on social media. Just search for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. Thanks to Mark Lerner for designing the logo and to the members of Madness for permission to use their music as our theme song. You can subscribe to this show on pretty much every podcast platform, again by searching for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a positive review or rating. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active. <laughs>